I want to begin our time with a question. Have you ever thought about how you're going to die? There's a joyful thought to consider. Have you ever thought about how you're going to die? I remember thinking a lot about death as a kid. And it probably had something to do with the fact that we were raised on a farm in rural Illinois. And so we, we saw animals die regularly, whether it was uh, cows or pigs or, or chickens. Sometimes it was due to illness. And sometimes it was due to the fact that they were being sent to the butcher to be the next order on the menu uh, for, for dinner. Death loomed largely in my mind. In fact, so much so that as a kid, I didn't ever anticipate living beyond age 25. That's just the way my little mind, was anyone a weird little kid like me or am I all by myself? <laughs> you know, I, I thought about death and someone who made it to 25 was like really old in my mind. I was like, oh man, that is super, super old. My, how my perspective on that has changed uh, just a little bit. But I do remember having conversations with friends about how we thought we might die. I think it's natural for people to fear death, and many people do. And it probably has something to do with our fear of pain, or our fear of suffering. Or it might be related to not knowing exactly how it's going to occur. After all, dying in your sleep seems like the, the, the top choice for most people. That's a little bit more pleasant to think about than um, being eaten alive by sharks while drowning in the middle of the ocean, okay? And that, that's a PG version of kind of what our little kid minds would, would think of. Um, we could think of, of a lot worse, uh, a lot worse things. Now, imagine for a moment that you knew for certain exactly how you were going to die and that it was going to be excruciatingly painful. In fact, it would be the, the worst experience that you've ever known and involve intense suffering. I think all of us would dread being in that position. And if that were not bad enough, imagine if you knew exactly when it was going to happen. That your fate was not only fixed in terms of how you would die, but also when you would die. And let's think about this and use a, a real life scenario. Hypothetically, let's say when you're a kid, someone told you that the day that you would turn 25, and we've already established that that's a good life expectancy from a kid's <laughs> point of view, right? And the day that you turn 25, that you are going to um, die and you are going to be locked in a burning building and that you are going to burn to death. This was your fate and there was nothing that you could do to change it. Would that have any bearing on how you lived the rest of your life? Think about that. Do you think you would tell anyone in advance? And if so, what would you say? The Lord Jesus Christ knew for all eternity that he would one day be born in human flesh and that he would suffer and die the most horrific death that had ever been experienced in history, as he would absorb the full fury of God the Father's wrath upon him. 
All redemptive history points to Jesus Christ's journey to the cross. And today, in our study in Mark chapter 10, Jesus is actually going to predict his passion for a third time. His suffering in his death is commonly referred to as the passion. You may have seen the, the, the well-known movie uh, by Mel Gibson called The Passion of Christ, which, which basically portrays the last week of our Lord's life. What is the significance of Jesus predicting his passion on three separate occasions? How would his disciples respond after being told a third time? You can only imagine what Jesus was feeling as his time was drawing near. And you can feel the suspense actually intensifying in the passage that we're going to look at today. Let's start by reading it together, Mark chapter 10, and we're going to read verses 32 to 45. They were on the road to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside, and he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles." They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant that we may sit, one on your right and one on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Let me pray for our study as we dive into God's word. Father, we come yielded to your word and the ministry of your Holy Spirit within our hearts. We pray that you would bless our study and that you would challenge, convict, and transform us to be more like your son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Why does our Lord predict his suffering and death three different times? And wouldn't one time be sufficient? To answer this question, and for the sake of efficiency, I prepared an overview of Christ's passion predictions in Mark's gospel account which I put on a PowerPoint slide that you're going to see 
up ahead of you, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain it as you look at it. In my study, I noticed that each of Christ's predictions followed the same progression in the flow of Mark's gospel, which are directly related to the theme of the entire book, Jesus as servant. Those in the room may not be familiar, but as it relates to the synoptic gospels and the gospel of John, each of those gospel accounts has a theme. Matthew is Jesus as king. Mark is Jesus as servant. Luke is Jesus as son of man. And John is Jesus as son of God. Okay? Mark's gospel focuses on the fact that Jesus came as a servant. And on the PowerPoint, you'll notice that all three passages start with our Lord's passion prediction. And you may recall this when we studied the last passion prediction. I said that you can remember where they're located in Mark if you think of the timing in terms of a clock. You can see Mark 8.30, 9.30, 10.30, okay? That's just my, that was my little cue, honestly, to remember exactly where they're at and to flip back, back and forth to, to draw comparisons as, as I prepared this for you. It helps to know where they're at. And each passion prediction is followed by and contrasted with, as you can see, a prideful response from the disciples. After the first prediction, it was Peter who pulled the Lord to a side and, and he rebuked him for what he had shared. After the second prediction, the disciples argued about who among them was the greatest. And after the third prediction, James and John, they request VIP seats and positions of honor next to Christ in glory. As you can see, our Lord had his hands full with these guys, didn't he? Right? He, he really did. He's got his hands full with us as well, and we're going to see that a little bit more as we, as, we, as we look at this passage. The issue of pride was so deeply rooted in their hearts that Jesus, after he gets in, encountered with it, he provides them with discipleship principles, vital discipleship principles. You may have noticed and these principles are, are, are related to servanthood, okay? You'll notice that just even as you read them. You may have noticed this progression already in our passage when we read through it moments ago, and if you didn't, why aren't you paying attention? No, I'm just kidding. It's actually easy to miss, and that's why I wanted to create this overview so that you could see the progression, because it's like, why? Jesus could have just said it one time. But it was always a matter of discipleship with the Lord, it was always a, a focus to help them see who he was and also to see who they were at the heart level. It confirms for us why he mentioned it three times. We're going to include a copy of this slide for you uh, the next time that we preach in Mark. Pastor Isaiah will be preaching next Sunday, and we'll look forward to that. And then when we pick up our study again the following Sunday... So you don't need to jot this down. You're going to have a, a printed copy in a couple weeks. But today, we're actually going to spend our time just on the opening verses, verses 32 through 34, and here's why. To understand how or to, to, to be enabled 
to, to do these things right here, right? Deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me to be uh, a servant of all if you want to be first, if you want to be great. In order to do this, we have to understand this. It's absolutely critical. It's imperative that we understand why the Lord is having us focus on these things. And as we walk through these verses, you're going to see that we need to be captured by Christ's passion and understand all that it points us to. Verses 33 and 34, as we walk through them, we're going to see that Christ's passion points us to his humility. Christ's passion points us to his substitutionary death. Christ's passion points us to his suffering. And his passion points us to his victory. But before we get there, we must first read and understand the introductory verse that comes in verse 32, where it says this, they were on the road going to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. Stop here for a moment. At this point in our journey through Mark's gospel, we're, we, we all have a thorough understanding of who Jesus' enemies are, right? The, the scribes and the, and the Pharisees, they want him dead, there are political leaders like the Herodians who also are conspiring with other secular people, even the scribes and the Pharisees, who they would normally try to avoid just to put an end to Jesus. And so you, we need to understand this is what's taking place. Jesus is now walking decidedly straight into the eye of the storm with each step that he takes headed toward Jerusalem. And notice something. It says that Jesus is leading the way. He's not lagging behind like a prisoner going to the gallows, but he's leading the way, or as one commentator describes him, he's like Isaiah's servant of the Lord who, quote, set his face like flint, end quote, in Isaiah 57. This means that he was determined. He was, he was fixed. He he. he he did not give way in any way. He, or I'll put it in a guy's sports term, he had his game face on. It was game time. The purpose for which he came. He was fixed, looking, and headed toward Jerusalem. And this is a mark and an indication of what's to come. And we actually see the triumphal entry coming in Mark chapter 11, right at the end of, of chapter 10, it comes up next. Now notice the dichotomy of tension of those who are with Jesus. They were amazed and they were afraid at the same time. They were excited to see what would happen because they, they've seen Jesus' incredible success, right, with just obliterating those who stand in opposition. Yet at the same time, they also, we can be certain, were aware of conspiracies to, to put an end to Jesus. And so their hearts, they think about the collective um, group of opposition being in Jerusalem, and, and it says that they were afraid. It's, it's the, the word that we actually get phobia from. There was great fear. 
Have you ever had that experience where you've had uh, great excitement, but yet great fear at the same time? It's, it's yeah. Um, I was trying to think of a, a way to illustrate it, and one of the ministry ways that I would illustrate it is going out to do evangelism, right? Right? Anyone? If you've gone out to do door-to-door evangelism or to evangelize a group uh, and do street evangelism, you can be really excited to, to, to soul win, to go share the gospel, and, and to reach people for the sake of Christ. But if we're honest, I think that there can also be some fear, some trepidation, some, some nervousness about how it's going to work out, what people are going to think of me, right? Fear of man creeps in. Listen, Jesus knew what he was facing. And he knew how it was going to end. And he walked boldly into the eye of the storm. And certainly there's a, an encouragement for, for us to apply as we, as we think about this before we even get to the, the passion prediction, right? We can look at him. We, we have the ministry of his Holy Spirit. We have his advocacy. You know, whom shall we fear? What can man do to me, right? It's, we, we need to be reminded of that just as we walk faithfully in ministry, as we, as we trust him to lead us directly through the eye of the storms. Verse 32 continues. And again, he took the 12 aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him. And here Jesus reveals the most detailed passion prediction. And this will help us to be captured by Christ's passion. Right? You can even see the, the most detail as you look at the, the top row. Um, this third account provides by far about twice as much detail. First, Christ's passion points us to his humility. Look at the beginning of verse 33. Jesus says, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. And there are three markers of Christ's humility that I want us to see in these opening words from our Lord. The first is Jerusalem and Christ's willingness to go there. Jerusalem, as you know, is God's holy city. It is mentioned some, nearly some 800 times in God's word. And perhaps the most beautiful description is provided for us in Psalm 122. If anyone should be welcomed in Jerusalem, it should be the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus shares in his own words, however, in Matthew 23, 37, when he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Our Lord, in his humility, was still willing to go there despite the rejection of the prophets, despite the anticipated rejection of of him as Messiah. The second marker of Christ's humility is the Son of Man being delivered. The Son of Man, as we've learned in the past, it's Jesus' favorite phrase for self-designation. It's used over 80 times in all four of the gospel accounts. And it reflects the exalted figure of Daniel chapter 7. What does this expression mean? 
The short answer, son of God implies deity. Son of man implies humanity. But what we need to see is what the Jews would have understood this expression to mean through the lens of the Old Testament. Specifically, it's used in the book of Daniel. So if you want to turn there, you can see it. Just going to read verses 13 and 14 for you. Daniel 7, 13 and 14 says this, and you'll notice, depending on your Bible translation, that the heading in most says the Son of Man presented. Daniel writes, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Here we see clearly that the Son of Man in Daniel, and as the Jews would have understood it, was a very exalted figure. Not just a human figure, he was a highly exalted figure. This is who Jesus Christ is. Yet in his humility, he allowed himself to be delivered and condemned, just like a criminal. And we understand just how heinous and outrageous this is because we get the big picture. We have the ability, don't we, to connect the, the Old Testament dots that they, could, they, they couldn't connect when it came to the Scriptures tying the Old Testament. And there wasn't a New Testament at that point, but you get, get what I'm saying. Even as it related to the words that Jesus was saying, it was recorded in the Gospels, a recording of actually the words that he shared during this point in time. What I'm trying to say is that the first disciples didn't have this privilege. And so they needed Jesus to reveal this to, to them progressively. And I don't know about you, but if they know their Old Testaments well, and they see the use of the Son of Man and the fact that Jesus, just in, in record, is referring to himself as the Son of Man eight, over 80 times, how many, how many more times that aren't recorded did he refer to himself as he used that designation? Not only did the Son of Man get delivered, but there's a third marker of humility, and that is that Jesus was delivered straight into the hands of the chief priests and scribes. And this is stunning. Those most critical of Jesus over his entire earthly ministry, right? Those that were always watching him, trying to come up with ways with to, to, to accuse him and to accuse his disciples of dishonoring God and dishonoring the law. They would be the ones who would be used by God to determine his ultimate fate according to the foreknowledge and predetermined plan of God. Of course, our Lord's humility, it goes well beyond verse 33 and this is merely a prequel to the ultimate example of Christ's humility on the cross that the disciples would come to understand at a later point. But at this time, to suggest that he would be delivered into the hands of the chief priests and the scribes is totally incomprehensible. And the truth be told that this is laying a vital foundation in Mark for us and the servant theme, which is embedded throughout 
One commentator writes, when it comes to humility, Jesus does not only teach, he leads the way, end quote. And we see his humility throughout his ministry, yet it reaches its pinnacle at his passion. Christ's passion points us to his humility. Next, we need to see that Christ's passion points us to his substitutionary death. Look at the middle of verse 33. Jesus says, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Christ's passion points us to his substitutionary death. And to some degree, this is going to be review for us because we've already studied the first two uh, passion predictions, right? But, but it's definitely worth repeating and it's important. Christ's death wasn't just any death. We get that. There were huge theological implications. His death, as we've shared in the past, was a penal substitutionary atoning death. I said that was a lot to say. But I, and I encourage us as a church, I encourage you as a gospel witness to know what that means and, and to, to know that truth. And, and we break it down like this, and it'll be good for us to do it again. Christ's death was penal in that he bore a penalty when he died. Jesus paid the penalty for the sins of everyone who would trust in Christ for salvation. And we, let me stop there for a minute. We know that um, as it relates to Jesus dying for the sins of the world, which scripture uh, lets us know, there, there, there's an aspect where there's uh, three concentric circles as it relates to, to Christ's death. The, the big picture is the whole world, right? The, the outer ring. And we know that his, his, the penalty that he bore was efficient to cover the sins of the whole world. And then when we move that circle down, we have the body, the church, right? And we know that it was sufficient, right? That it was actually effectually applied to the church, right? And then if we even go down to one, a smaller circle, you know who's in it? You. You, believer me he died because he loved you he died because he loved me and sometimes we can you know when we talk about him paying a penalty it's easy for us to lose sight of that but we always have to bring it down and that's why all of our christian life is based on a personal relationship with him Christ paid the penalty for the sins of everyone who would trust in him for salvation. And how did our Savior's death make payment? His death was a ransom, just as Mark 10.45 will teach us. The Son of Man gave his life as a ransom for many. And we all understand what a ransom is. We even mentioned it in our sermon last week. It's, it's, it's the price in order to set someone or something free. And if we do not place our faith in Christ... That means that you and I cannot be freed from paying the penalty that we owe God for our sin. And that we have to pay the penalty ourselves. If a person rejects the gospel, then that person must face the reality of their own eternal death sentence. Second, Christ's death was also substitutionary in that he served as a substitute when he died. And we, we understand the concept of a substitute, a replacement, 
I think I used a teacher in the past. Most common substitute teachers come in as a replacement. Christ's death serves as the ultimate substitute. And we've all heard stories of someone heroically dying for someone or even for a group of, of people. And such a person is held in, in high regard. Soldiers who serve and are deployed, who give their lives on the battlefield. There's uh, purple hearts and there, there's, there's medals for, for honor as it relates to that. And I've shared this in the past, but it bears repeating again. How much more does the one who has died for eternal souls, countless eternal souls, right? How much more should he be honored? And this is a great question when we talk about substitution to ask when sharing the gospel with an unsaved coworker, family, friend, whoever. If Jesus Christ is not your substitute, then who is? No one else is qualified to stand in your place. No one. No one else is able to be your substitute. So even an aspect of that in Psalm 49 that we, you may recall from last week, no one can ransom their brother. No one. It's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. The third and final aspect of his death is that it's an atoning death. And we talked about this word in the past too. It literally means at one mint. And it's meant to reflect the reconciliation that the gospel has, the, the, the effect that it has uh, on our life, on our soul. There's an at one mint. There's an atonement that is made when sin is covered and satisfied according to God's standard and satisfaction. The death of his son atones or covers the sins for everyone who trusts in Christ alone. We sing it, in Christ alone, right? Romans 5.10 says this about believers. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. His death atoned for our sins and God's perfect righteousness in Christ now covers us. And I shared this question too. If, if Christ's perfect righteousness isn't credited to your account, then whose righteousness is? How are you covered? The reality is without him, we're exposed. There is no sufficient righteousness. You and I and every person on this planet needs Christ and his atoning work of his death. Christ's passion points us to his substitutionary death. Third in our outline is this. Christ's passion points us to his suffering. Look at the beginning of verse 34. Here our, our Lord confirms this about his executioners when he states, they will mock him they, and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. These are four brutal actions within this verse that point us to how Christ will suffer. First, they will mock him. And throughout his passion, we, we see passages in, in the scriptures that uh, affirm a few different people group, groups that are, are mocking and ridiculing the Son of God. In Matthew 26, the guards of the high priest mocked him when they blinded, uh, blindfolded Jesus. And you may recall that they, they struck him after he was blindfolded and they were treating him, um, asking him to prophesy 
who was going to hit him next. The soldiers of Pilate mocked Jesus when they put a scarlet robe on him. They twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head. They put a reed in his hand like a staff. And they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And then they took the reed, which I've talked about in a past sermon, is, is like a broomstick. It would have been about the equivalent of a broomstick. And they hit him on the head with it, driving the, the thorns into his head. The crowds mocked him as he hung on the cross. We all know the story well. We know it well. They mocked him. The second brutal action says they spit on him, which I think we know just how vulgar that action is. But to make a point, I, I want to I have an illustration, but I'm going to need a volunteer. So I need somebody about my height. Philip Marenka, you're right here, man. Come on up. How are you? So you're a little nervous. He's, he's excited and he's fearful at the same time. See, you know, I knew there was going to be an opportunity. I mean, you're going to have to be pretty brave here. I, I want you to do something for me. Uh, on the count of three, um, I want to have you spit as hard as you can in my face. Directly to my, to, to, to my face. So muster up some spit. And, uh, and on the, the count of three, I want you to just spit in my face. What if I actually did that? You, 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 can't, you can't do it. Okay. Uh, thanks for trying. Go ahead. Go ahead and take a seat. Michelle, come on up. No, no, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> you know what? I, 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 it drives the point home. You're such an honorable guy. And right now, just about half those in, in Roots are saying, man, I wish Pastor John would have asked me to come up and spit in his face. That would have been awesome. No, just kidding, Roots. I, I, but, but, but think about it. I mean, there's something even internally when we think about the vulgarity. And you, and you honor me as a friend, as a brother in the Lord. I'm grateful for that. When we think about the vulgarity of someone mustering up and, and spitting. And the Lord of the universe got spit in his face. It's unbelievable. The Lord of the universe was spit on directly into his face. There are no words. I, I have no words. And, and if you have a sensitive heart within you, and you think about that reality, it's just, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. It's absolutely mind-numbing to think about. And ironically, we haven't even talked about the two most brutal actions that are found here in the verse. Next, he's going to be scourged with a flagrum, a leather whip that we've talked about, uh, had uh, pieces of metal attached to it and sheep bone on a, on a leather whip. Thirty-nine lashes. 
over the backside. 39. Count them out sometimes. Just, just do that. Right. 39. And all this before being impaled to a cross. The most brutal form of capital punishment that the Romans could think of that ultimately ends with its victims slowly suffocating to death. As they pull themselves up through nail-pierced hands, as they push down on nail-pierced feet, as their backs lay against their scourged back, a jagged, rough, wooden stipe, trying to breathe. Christ's passion points us to his suffering. And why are we covering these? Why are we covering each of these? I'm telling you, for the same reason our Lord predicts his passion three different times in Mark's gospel. Are you captured by Christ's passion? What's the significance? It fuels our worship. It fuels our worship. It grounds it. It fuels our obedience to the Lord. How? Fair question. The last one right here. Christ's passion points us to his victory. Look one final time at verse 34. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And then what does Jesus say? And three days later, he will rise again. Amen? Three days later, he will rise again. The climax of the passion is the prediction of the resurrection. And it ultimately points us to Christ's victory over death and sin. And interestingly, Mark doesn't even record the response by the disciples. And this has just got to be a startling statement. Only in Luke's account does it say the disciples did not understand any of this in Luke 18.34. Would they in time? Would they in time? Yes. They would. And here's where we have a distinct advantage by knowing and understanding the complete gospel and the conclusion of the passion. We know and understand the significance of Christ's death and his resurrection. Three days after Jesus fulfilled the passion and died on the cross, he got up from the dead. He stood up from the dead. Jesus freely laid down his life and he said, I freely take it back up. Shared that in John 10, 18. Jesus got up on the third day never to die again is how he's described in Revelation 1, 18. When Jesus rose again, he stripped the power of the grave and he gave his followers victory over sin, death, hell, and the grave just as Paul writes for us in that beautiful passage in 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter, right? Verses 53 through 57. 
when Jesus rose again, he rose with everlasting life for all of those who would trust completely in him by faith. And then John eleven twenty-five 25 and 26, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And he finishes with the question, do you believe this? Yes. Amen. Do you believe this? And it's our faith in Christ that awakens us, that enables us to walk in newness of life. We are new creations. His resurrection power dwells within. We've sing, sung it in the song. The same power that rose Jesus from the, raised Jesus from the grave is the same power that resides within us. It allows us to do that which we could never do before. It enables our heart to give him true worship and to obey him from the heart. And this is why we want to be Christ-centered, gospel-centered, cross-centered, however you want to say it. This is the focus. And it needs to be in our thinking. And this is why Jesus predicted his passion three times for his disciples and also three times for us. Christ's passion points us to his humility. It points us to his substitutionary death. It points us to his suffering, and it points us to his victory. And when you're captured by Christ's passion, this is what will enable you to serve others just as he did. Let me tell you something. You're not going to sit around and talk about which one among you is the greatest. You're not going to sit around and, and, and discuss with your, the brother next to you about who's going to sit in the VIP seats and be most recognized in ministry. We will serve selflessly and sacrificially just as Jesus did. With the Lord over us, no task is beneath us. And it is so true. And we're going to spend more time talking about this and the practical application that we draw out of this as we continue in our passage. Why? Because our resurrected life, our newness of life, that is what is going to allow us to deal with the prideful responses of our heart. And yeah, we may not be sitting around talking about who's going to be greatest, but there are other aspects of pride that, are, that, 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 that challenge our hearts, right? They, they, they're there. And in order for us to, to be obedient and for, for us to deny ourselves, to pick up our cross and to follow him, we have to understand and be captured by Christ's passion. At the beginning of the service, I asked you if you ever thought about how you're going to die. And the truth is that nobody really knows how or when they're going to die. We don't. And you could be terminal with cancer and you could die in a car accident tonight. We don't know. And to be honest, focusing on our lives and our deaths would change very little. But when we focus on Christ's life and his death, it changes everything. It changes everything. 
And may you and I always be captured by Christ's passion and may it fuel our worship and fuel our obedience as we seek to live for his glory. Amen, church? Amen. Pray with me. Gracious God, we bow our heads, united as a church family, thanking, for, uh, thanking you for the ministry of your word, thanking you for the tremendous privileges that we have to learn some of these great lessons at the disciples' expense. And it can be easy for us to stand in judgment of their response. And yet I think the truth be told that if we would have been there with them, chances are they went 12 for 12 on thinking about themselves first that we would be right there in the mix. And yet you have captured our hearts with your passion. And oh, how easy it is for us to think about so many other things even our own lives our own deaths and yet we need to be reminded to come back to the cross to come back to that week in our Lord's life that changes our perspective and our outlook on servanthood forever thank you Lord for the redemptive work that you're doing in the lives of so many in our church family. And I pray that if there's someone here today who has never responded to the call of the gospel, that today would be the day of salvation. Today that they would cry out to you and repent of their unbelief and their sin and trust completely in Christ. That they would give their lives and that they would see the beauty of what has been accomplished through the redemptive work of your son. Their penalty has been paid. The substitution took place. There's atonement that covers every single sin that we have ever done, that we could ever do. It covers it. It covers it completely so that we don't have to walk in guilt and shame. It's all nailed to the cross. Thank you for this reality. We look forward to our continued study of what verses 35 through 45 have to teach us as well. We ask that you'll be with us and encourage our hearts as we meditate on these truths today and throughout the remainder of this week and all the days ahead. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.